The following program may contain potty talk. No guarantee, but it just may. It's Wednesday, October 14th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today was the last day of hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. I watched them. I will bring them to you in the spiel. I will not be distracted by issues of lesser importance from far-flung states. Oh, God. Dateline Anchorage. Ethan, it's Maria Athens from Fox ABC, CW, Newsnet, National Alaska. Uh, I just learned from my uh, Emmy award-winning journalism, you're also a pedophile in, like, little girls and children. That is local Alaska reporter Maria Athens, who is the Fox, ABC, and CW Newsnet Alaska lead news anchor. And when you're the anchor of Anchorage, it's like being the treasurer for the finance club or the sign that the sign maker himself uses outside his store. What I'm saying, it's a doubly big deal. So our local news source, Maria Athens, has some explosive revelations ready to go. They are about Ethan Berkowitz, Anchorage's mayor. But as soon as the voicemail that I just played you was made public, and as soon as Athens posted a video on Facebook, the mayor reacted. He made his own statement, and he tried to wrest control of the narrative. He admitted to having, I guess, an affair over text. He sexted with Maria Athens. That's it. It wasn't more. It was sexting. All right. So let's assess the credibility of what else Anchorage's own Maria Athens asserts. And there's a website. I'm so fucking exposing you. I'm going to get an Emmy. Wait, is that I'm so fucking exposing you.com or I'm so fucking exposing you. I'm going to get an Emmy.com. Unclear on the name of the website. And I thought she already deployed Emmy award winning journalism. Didn't she say that in the first 15 seconds? Anyway, what this points out to me is that Maria Athens needs a good editor. All journalists do. I think I can help. Let's listen. Do you either turn yourself in, kill yourself, or do what you need to do. I will personally kill you and Mark Kimmel, my goddamn self, you Jewish piece of living fucking shit. Maria, 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 Maria. I understand your passion. As journalists, we've all been excited by a scoop. But I think, and not to tone police, but maybe you should back off just a tad on the actual death threats. Uh, especially the death threats to the wife. Where does she come in the story? Wasn't he even aware of her as a character? She seems to just be thrust in there. I'm saying, as your editor, could detract from the overall point of this obvious Emmy award-winning journalism. You know, I would hate for the Emmy committee to be distracted by some ancillary presentation, and then you'd have to settle for a polk. Let's see if Athens takes her foot off the accelerator at all. You have met your match, motherfucker. You have met your motherfucking match. I can't believe I am such a good person. Me neither. And thought I loved you. Okay, so you're at this point, I see what's going on here. You're inserting yourself into the narrative. It's a risk. It's not traditional, but it is what all the popular podcasts are doing, right? It does give it more stakes. So the listener follows along in your journey. Let's see where you go with this. I fucking hate. I don't even hate you. I will pray for your Zionist fucking ass, you piece of shit loser. Zionism, kind of a late addition to the mix here. Maybe leave it as an episode two cliffhanger. Anyway, just a thought. Bye. Have a great Friday, you motherfucker. Okay. Yeah, that is the catchphrase for sure. 
That's your stay sexy, don't get murdered. That's your don't drive like my brother. We will put, bye, have a great Friday, you motherfucker. That's going on all the merch. But you know, these days, you can't rely on just audio. You got to have a video component, a video promo that we could drop on Instagram and all the channels. Oh, you did? You put one on Facebook? Let's hear that. Breaking news. According to reliable sources, Anchor's Mayor Ethan Berkowitz has his male genitalia posted on an underage girl's website. Coming up tonight, Fox 4 News at 9, ABC News at 10, CW News at 1230, and Newsnet National for sure will cover this. You heard it here first. Genitalia, Anchor's Mayor. You're talking a little like Kimberly Guilfoyle, bringing that energy, but pairing it with the Janine Pirro implication of libations, and I like it. So the latest is that Berkowitz, who was term limited, announced he will be resigning in nine days, and also Athens is in police custody. She apparently punched her station manager, also reportedly a former romantic partner, in the face. And when police came to arrest her, she, quote, struck an officer and tried to kick the doors of a police cruiser, was charged with fourth-degree assault, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct. Mischief. So mischievous. In a court appearance, she later proclaimed, I have pancreatitis, which, Maria, to me, is stepping on your merchandising messaging we agreed upon, though maybe have a great Friday, you motherfucker on t-shirts and I pancreatitis on travel mugs. Maybe that could still work. This, if you really look at it, is a story with everything. There are some QAnon adjacent accusations. There is actually a teenage escorts cookie shop owning mother. There are all these maskless anti-lockdown protesters who are cheering at the mayor's ouster. We just got to decide whether to drop every episode at once or space them out because these are the tough choices. And let me just say in all earnestness that I would like to thank the mayor of Anchorage and the media of Anchorage up there in Anchorage for providing a wackadoo political story without life and death consequences for the rest of us. On the show today, a slightly more composed tale straight from the Senate chamber, Amy Coney Barrett, and what I learned about the law. But first, you've heard about the shy Trump voter, right? The idea that Trump has more support than the polls show. Well, there's one pollster, Trafalgar, that consistently shows Trump doing five or so points better than every other pollster shows. And it's easy to dismiss that, except for the fact that this pollster, Trafalgar, nailed it last time, got the Electoral College count right, was the only one to call such swing states as Wisconsin. Also, I do have to say that it does seem that the shy Trump voter is a myth. There's been some scholarship on it. It seems to be a myth. And I personally have never met one. In fact, all the Trump voters I see are flag-waving, MAGA-hat-wearing, pontoon-boat-piloting, shall we say extroverts. But then again, I'm the sort of person that makes a shy Trump voter shy. A shy Trump voter wouldn't confide in me. They know where I stand. And I was listening to a podcast between a couple people on the right, Rich Lowry and Megyn Kelly, and they both told each other, yeah, yeah, we know some shy Trump voters. And those are the type of people who a shy Trump voter would confide in. All right, add it all up. I am still skeptical, but I want to be humble. So I thought it would be a service to me and to you to invite on the Trafalgar Group's founder and chief pollster. And he says Trump voters are even shyer in 2020 than they were in 2016. Robert Kahaley up next.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As we know, in the 2016 election, the pollsters got it wrong. Only a couple things. On a national level, the pollsters really, really got it close to right. But then again, we don't vote on a national level. There were some states that really no pollsters nailed, except for one. Robert Cahaley, who runs the Trafalgar Group, was the only pollster to say that Trump would win Michigan. He had a very good record on many of the other swing states, the so-called blue wall, and he told us that Trump would win, often by the margins that he did win. In fact, if you look at the Electoral College vote, and this comes with an asterisk, Kaley nailed it exactly. Now, the asterisk is because that there were some faithless electors in Texas, but still, even without them, he came closer than any other national pollster. So, Girded with this reputation, Kahaley wades into this election with the Trafalgar Group, and his polling is consistently showing Donald Trump doing much better than the rest of the national polls and state polls indicate. And in some states that are supposedly going to Biden, according to Real Clear Politics Average, Kahaley says, no, nope, Trump's up. Like, for instance, Ohio, where he has Trump up 3.7%. National polling average in Real Clear Politics is 0.6%. Or take Michigan, where Biden is supposedly up 6.7%, according to the other pollsters. Kahaley and Trafalgar says, nope, it's 1.6%. Let's talk to him about his methods. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. So what is, and I know you like to simplify things, so in the simplest form, what is your secret sauce for getting these very different results than everyone else? Well, I'll let you in on as much of the secret sauce as I'm willing to tell anyone. But some of it's pretty, you know, it's pretty obvious. We are, we're kind of a polling industry disruptor for a few reasons. We just shoot down all the orthodoxy. The polling establishment, the orthodoxy is you need to do nothing but live callers and you have to make sure that you, you know, have, you ask these long detailed questionnaires. Well, I think live callers are the number one way what's called the social desirability bias infects a poll. And that's when the person who's answering the question 
worries about the opinion of the person asking them the question and gives an answer they think that will be more pleasing to that person and less offensive to that person. This has had gone by a few different names, but it was called the Bradley effect. And so we've seen this manifested in my life. Anything that's controversial, I'm used to seeing this effect show up in polling. The first clue there was something going on with this was when we were polling the primaries in 2016, and we saw a significant difference between what our live callers and our digital polls were giving, and it was like a three-point difference. And as it turns out, the three-point difference that the non-live callers were getting was correct, and we realized there were people who were voting for Trump who just weren't admitting it. So we kind of built that into our thinking for the fall of 2016, and um, So the first thing is, know that there is a thing called the social desirability bias. Know that it was real in 2016. And I believe it is worse this time than last time. Because last time it was, you know, there are deplorables, this, that, and the other. And, you know, the environment has totally changed in America since then. So you have a few dynamics working. First, Trump supporters are about five to one less willing to answer a poll to begin with. So if you don't start with the idea that you've got to work really hard to get a good sample of Republicans, you're going to start with a flawed poll. Second, the social desirability bias makes live calls the worst way to do it. What we use is we use a mixture of live, email, automated, text, and a few other digital things that we consider proprietary that we don't discuss. But we try to do a very balanced collection to ensure the people giving the survey feel that they are answering it anonymously. The more anonymous someone feels their participation in a poll is, the more honest they are. So a couple things. Uh, Bradley, that was a 1982 race. And I studied political science. Um, it's been, I, I would say, widely discounted, though I suppose you would doubt the uh, political science behind it. But even one of the popularizers of the Bradley effect said, you know, the political science professor, Charles Henry, wrote an editorial saying, I coined the term the Bradley effect and it's not real. I remember Barack Obama, the Bradley effect was raised as, oh, this is why he might not win. And then he did win. Although you're right. I mean, as you know, and I don't have to tell you, Andrew Gillum, a black candidate, was supposedly leading in the polls. I mean, he was leading in the polls. And then he lost on election day. And you got that right. What was interesting on that race is we were obviously polling the Senate race and the governor's race. There was no, you know, we asked, we asked, and that, that in 18 and 16, the, who do you think most of your neighbors voting for, which is a great way to get beyond the social desirability bias. And we saw no difference in the Senate race and about a five-point swing in the race for governor. So, you know, and here's the thing. I grew up in South Carolina, which was in, we shared a media market with North Carolina. I mean, some of my earliest years in politics were seeing this guy named Jesse Helms, who was very much a Trump-like figure, who was very controversial. And the running joke was, if he's behind by five points, he's going to win. So anybody who says this effect isn't real, listen, that that might get him some tenure at some college somewhere, but uh, I don't buy it. I mean, that's not reality. You know, I've watched it happen again and again and race after race. And it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about anything. It's easy for people to, to discount something. I mean, you know, they discounted and said, well, we got it wrong in 2016 in these states because of we didn't wait by education. I mean, it is really easy. But what they are doing is they are defending an old model. They are defending what I call dinosaur polling. And 
the world has moved on. People move too fast for long questionnaires. People do not want to be disrupted and to take a poll now or never. And, you know, people don't feel comfortable sharing their opinions in the current environment. And if you don't adjust for that, you just keep getting it wrong. But the problem is people who poll with an agenda don't care whether they get it wrong. And that's, I see a lot of agenda polling. The people criticize, oh, well, you know, you, you guys are Republicans. We, absolutely. You know, I, my, my background is Republican. But that didn't stop me in 2018 from predicting that Debbie Stabenow was going to win. Uh, and I, I, I like Jack, John James a great deal, but he wasn't going to win. And for predicting very early that Joe Manchin was unbeatable and for saying that Tester was going to win when the entire Republican establishment wanted him to lose. And for even calling that Wisconsin was going to go to Evers and not Scott Walker. We got roundly criticized by my fellow Republicans for making those predictions. But our goal is to get it right, not to be popular with any party. Yeah, I'm actually more interested in process because I have a couple of theories. And one is that I think it's possible that you've gotten a couple of keen insights correct. But within that, you may be getting some things wrong. So one insight that seems very smart to me is the length of polls. It does seem to me that asking a few quick questions that aim to get the answer that we're all looking for, who you're going to vote for, probably is a better way than 50 question surveys that do exclude um, many regular people from taking part of it. But the part that I really question is, it seems like you've weighed in uh, with an assumption about the motivations of undecided voters, that there is a, for instance, a shy Trump effect um, among people who may be living among Democrats and have social costs to supporting Trump. But doesn't that work the other way? There are huge counties where everyone and their neighbors are going to vote for Trump, but there are the people who might be against Trump or voting for Biden. Why wouldn't they be shy? Well, there's obviously there's there's a shy voter effect in, in, in on many sides. As a matter of fact, I predicted early in this cycle that if the nominee were to be Bernie Sanders, that it would have a huge shy effect between Bernie and Trump and that we would have an undecided number in excess of 5% uh, leading all the way to election day because people, with him taking the label of socialist, there would be Democrats who weren't comfortable saying they were for him. So I do believe it worked both directions, absolutely. You know, in 2016, the difference we saw was Hillary, all, I mean, not there was never an exception. When we asked the neighbor question as a measurement, Hillary always dropped by three to six, and Trump went up, you know, well, I think it was three to nine. And it, it was without exception across the board, one pattern. Now, are there people, are there shy voters within? Yes, there are. But the other thing is the way I look at the social desirability bias, I mean, it, these are rough numbers, but I would say our process eliminates two thirds of it because we get more average people, because we give a shorter survey, because we give them a comfortable, give them co- comfortable feeling that is anonymous. I think we knock off about two-thirds of the social desirability bias. But I can look at our results. I can look at people because we ask additional questions that we are not sharing with the media this year because of scrupulous pollsters like the guys that work for Fox News who copy us without giving us credit. Now, I don't take credit for thinking of it. There's a guy named Rod Sheely who taught it to me in South Carolina when I was growing up. So it ain't my idea. But I, I, I don't mind giving credit for who gave it to me. But 
that helps to to give you a sense of where they are. We ask additional questions on our poll, not a lot of additional, but ones that tell us where they probably really are. Now, we don't integrate that into our numbers. We just keep that in mind as we look toward our final poll of the year when we're going to make a prediction about how the undecideds will break. So, for example, I can look at my Pennsylvania poll that shows Trump losing by two, and I can see questions about fracking that showed me the vast majority of the undecideds were very pro-fracking. The vast majority of the undecideds thought that Trump was much better on dealing with China, and the vast majority of the undecideds said they weren't a strict constructionist conservative judge on the Supreme Court. Now, I don't believe those undecideds are breaking toward Biden with those answers. And I saw people who answered many questions that were, un, I mean, that were duplicates of the way Trump people answered them and said Biden. So I think there's still some hiding in even ours. I do not claim to eliminate the social desirability bias. I claim to minimize it. I do have one question about just the entire conception of social desirability. So we are group animals. And when there is social pressure, people react in different ways. So as you see it, people react by sticking to their original opinions, but not telling others about their opinions. Sure, I'm sure some people do. But, you know, from my observation of human nature, sometimes when there is huge pressure to conform, you know what people do? They conform. So why don't you look at the social desirability effect as sometimes causing more Biden voters if it becomes all the more socially desirable to vote for Absolutely. Biden. Absolutely. There are band... Listen, you are, you are completely correct. There are bandwagon people. And, you know, th- there are people that, that want to be outliers and there are bandwagon people. What's really interesting is when you do focus group work and you ask a focus group, they watch an ad or, or you know, listen to you know, some audio or just watch, uh, you know, a television program with the candidates on them and then you ask them to talk about what they think. And then you ask them to show their hands on how they feel and, you know, who they're for. But then you also hand them a paper ballot and let them go separately mark what they see. You will see a difference every single time. People who had an opinion that the group didn't like, didn't feel comfortable sharing in front of the group. But as soon as they could write that thing down where nobody was looking, they told you the truth. I mean, that is just human nature. I mean, my example is when you confront the toddler with a face full of crumbs and ask him, did he eat the missing cookies? He is doing mental calculation right then on whether he should be honest and get in trouble or if you're asking the question you don't know and maybe he should say no. Now, I don't believe that behavior changes when we get older. I mean, it is literally to suggest that a society full of people who lie to their accountant lie to their attorney, lie to their doctor, lie to their priest, all of a sudden just become honest Abe on the telephone for a poll? Come on. In the words of Joe Biden, come on, man. No way. So we see certain demographic groups really fleeing from Trump, suburban women and especially old people. Why would there be a difference in a demographic group like the elderly or suburban women that makes them more likely to be a shy Trump voter or a hidden Trump voter than other demographic groups that haven't abandoned Trump? Two pollsters, I mean. I don't speak in terms of all demographic groups as as if any of them are monolithic because I don't think they are. No, I don't think they're monolithic, but I'm trying to point to the demographic groups that he had strength in and that he's losing strength in. And so if your explanation is he hasn't really lost strength. 
No, I think he's lost a lot of strength with suburban women, but what he's also picked up is significant portions of the Hispanic and black vote. We have polled not a single state, not a single battleground state that he is doing less than 15 and that Joe Biden is doing more than 75. Not a single state in the black vote. We have polled not a single battleground state that Trump is doing less than 35 and Biden is doing higher than 60 with Hispanic votes. And those are the ones who, who say that that's where they are. Now, of course, our polls are much more anonymous. So I think that's the place he's picked up. I also think he's lost some ground with the seniors. And I think that is completely COVID related because seniors, unlike every other group, look at COVID in a very different way. And not, not just because they're elderly and more likely to catch it. Most of them do not have children living at home that they would like to get out of the house to go back to school. Most of them did not have an interruption in their income because of shutdowns. And most of them were never worried about whether they work affecting whether they had health care. So they would naturally be less likely to want to push the economy back going because the shutdown did not affect them to the same degree. It's just, it's logic and it, it, it makes sense. And, and I've heard them say it. They're very nervous about it. So a traditional Republican stronghold would be the, those same seniors are di- very much in play. If the election were held today, who do you project winning? Right now, I think Trump wins in the mid-270s. I think he wins Florida. Florida is, I, I don't think Florida's a question. Ohio and Florida are not a question. Anybody talking about Georgia and Texas, that ain't going to happen. I think North Carolina, he'll edge out North Carolina and win it. And then, it, then he'll, I think he will win Arizona. And so then it comes down to he only has to win one of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And I believe he will win one of them. And I think Michigan is an excellent chance for a Trump victory. I would say probably of those four, Michigan is the most likely one that he will win. And if he wins the others, that's all he needs. So on election day or election week, the tide goes out and we see who's swimming naked and who's swimming with trunks. Look, the numbers are the numbers. In 2016, you got the numbers right. If it turns out in 2020 that your numbers are wrong, are you going to say my numbers are wrong? Or are you going to say maybe it's voter fraud? Maybe it's a deus ex Charles Barkley? The question is, what about all the guys who got it wrong in 2016? They didn't say anything. But here's the thing. I will certainly... I do not mind saying that. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Pennsylvania, I might have to, I might have to put an asterisk on that one because I really think that one's going to be stolen. But the rest of them, I mean, if we get it wrong, we get it wrong. Listen, I don't mind being held accountable. I, I, if we lived in a polling meritocracy, I'd be the happiest guy you know. But we don't. We just don't. I mean, I have a theory. And I said in 2016, three days before the election, you know, come Wednesday, I'm going to be the guy who got it right and nobody's going to listen to me anymore. I mean, I believe in what I say. It's the reason I challenged Nate Silver to a bet, which, of course, he immediately declined because he, he can't bet on these things. Because I believe in what I say. I'm not putting this out there for the benefit of a party or a campaign. I have a private sector polling business, and we make lots of money in the private sector because people believe that we get it right more often than anyone else. So... My goal is to get it right more than anyone else. Election week will be the test. Robert Cahaley is the chief pollster of the Trafalgar Group. Thanks for your time. Hey, thank you. The non-kabuki, but also non-take-at-face value 
Hearings for Amy Coney Barrett continued today. Because she stuck to the pre-approved over the decades game plan, nothing that was said by anyone will have any effect on her taking a seat on the Supreme Court. So insight must be gleaned, not from what was the straight-ahead penetrative rays of light beaming from the dais down onto the nominee. No, it is in the emanations of the penumbra that we can be edified, that we seek edification. So I'm going to tell you a few things I learned because of the hearings, thanks to the hearings. It won't be a surprise ending. I'm going to tell you my learning will have no bearing on the stated purpose of the hearings to evaluate the nominee. That's not what went on, evaluation. But I did learn this. I did learn about a guy named Ricky Cantor, who had quite a scam going on a few years back. Ricky Cantor made shoe inserts working under the brand name Dr. Comfort. Old Doc Comfort, he'll set your feet up right. Yes, sir. Doc Comfort sold people these corrective inserts primarily to individuals with diabetes and severe foot disease. And the thing about these corrective inserts is they didn't correct. They were just pieces of foam for all we know. Anyway, old Doc Comfort, because of this, spent some time in the Who's Gow and paid his victims $27 million. A large chunk of change. Then Ricky Canner, Doc Comfort, comes out and says he needs something, a little something. And that thing is a gun. Sure, I would imagine there are a lot of angry diabetics who are going to come hobbling after him, so he might want to be armed. But the question is, can this con, can this fake foot-fix felon legally get a gun? Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois picks up the story from there. He came to the federal courts and said, this is unfair. I've served my year in prison. Now I want to buy a gun. And the law says I can't buy a gun if I'm guilty of a felony. And the court said, sorry, Ricky, you can't buy a gun because you are guilty of a felony. Even the Heller decision. Justice Scalia said that felonies and mental illness could continue to disqualify a person from buying a gun in this country. Two out of three judges who heard this case said, that's right. That's the law. Sorry, Ricky, no AK-47 for your birthday. But then you took a look at it and reached the opposite conclusion. She did. Writing in dissent, she began. 18 U.S.C. paragraph 922 G1 and Wisconsin statute 941.29 would stand on solid footing if their categorical bans were tailored to serve the government's undeniably compelling interest in protecting the public from gun violence. Of course, it would not stand on solid footing if Dr. Comfort were providing the foot insert standing on solid footing. Amy, read the room. But this is actually an interesting argument. Barrett said a nonviolent felon shouldn't have rights abridged, which a few of the Democratic senators pointed out seems to imply something about nonviolent felons having their right to vote abridged. No, 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 said Amy Coney Barrett. These are different things. But, you know, if a legislature wants to define voting rights however they want to define voting rights, that's fine. But it is not up to her as a judge to do so when it comes to finding a right to vote. But when it came to finding a right to bear arms, she actually did find that right. Because, and this is a fundamental distinction, Barrett argued she wasn't writing the law. She was interpreting the law by looking at what is constitutional. Because no one ever writes the law, if you ask them, and they believe it, 
that they always either just read the law as written by the legislature that they're considering and say, let us go with that law, or they read the law by the legislature and say, oh, no, no, we have to go by that other law named the Constitution. So no one's ever making up law. They're just reading the law and enforcing the law. The problem or question is, which law? The one right before them or the one that's on crinkly parchment in the Smithsonian? With gun control, conservative justices throw out laws written by states and municipalities in favor of the Second Amendment, which they say is the controlling law. But with abortion rights, they decried it in Roe versus Wade when liberals threw out laws written by states or municipalities, arguing, no, you must follow the law. Democrats are arguing the exact opposite points. So it was interesting to think about Ricky Cantor and his shoes. It's also interesting to think about this one quote that has been presented to Judge Coney Barrett over the last couple days. It is a quote from Judge Coney Barrett. The date of the interview was June 25th, 2015. And what had just happened was the Supreme Court had ruled in Burwell. You remember Burwell? That is when Justice Roberts sided with Kennedy and the Democratic appointees to let the ACA stand. Bad decision, said Amy Coney Barrett in an interview. And this is interesting because it's more of a smoking gun than all her endorsements of pro-life rhetoric. Because in those cases, she could say, those are just my personal beliefs. Those are different from my judicial decision-making. But here, she was asked about the judicial decision-making of Justice Antonin Scalia, and she said, yes, that was solid in the dissent, objecting to Judge Roberts upholding the ACA. Now, she has an answer for that, of course. She says, well, when I made that distinction, I was just a professor. And as a professor, I don't hear all the evidence a justice does. I can't look the litigants in the eye. I didn't have the benefit of discussing things with my fellow justices. It is kind of weak, isn't it? She's saying that her rulings will depend greatly on the doctrine of, I just like the cut of the plaintiff's jib. But what I found interesting were the words that came directly after Barrett's pronouncement that Scalia's dissent was the stronger legal argument. This is from WBUR's On Point back in 2015. I think the dissent has the better of the legal argument. That's not to say that the result isn't preferable. I mean, it's, it's clearly a good result that these millions of Americans won't lose their tax sub- subsidies. But just in terms of the analysis of the statute, it seemed to me, I was on, uh, kind of thinking that the phrase established by a state was clear. Huh. She said it was good that people won't lose their tax subsidies. Neither side brought this up in the hearings. If they did, I missed it. I only watched hours and hours. But the Democrats, I guess not bringing it up is logical. It makes her seem a little more sympathetic to conservatives, to Republicans. I guess they didn't want to imply that anyone benefiting from the ACA is a good thing. Legally, the expression of sympathy for citizens, it has no bearing on whether this then professor, now judge, probable future justice, what she thinks about the law. She said that. She may well think that. She may may still think that. But of course, she's going to say it will not determine her opinion when wearing the robes. But unless I missed it, that elision is telling. It tells us something about 
these hearings. Because in a normal world of normal humans, evaluating the pronouncements made by another human, you'd want to know the full comment. It wouldn't work out that everyone agreed that the full context of the comment is not relevant or doesn't shed light on the person that you're trying to evaluate. But it is clear Remember when I said in a normal world of normal humans, it is clear that we are not living in that normal world. In fact, we're not living in the same world. Chairman Lindsey Graham told us so in the day's opening statement. This is the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who's unashamedly pro-life and uh, embraces her faith without apology, and she's going to the court seat at the table is waiting on you and it will be a great signal to all young women who want to who share your view of the world that there's a seat at the table for them uh, this won't be celebrated in most places It'd be hard to find much commentary about this uh, moment in american history but in many of our worlds this will be celebrated this has been a long time coming and we have arrived. And just where have we arrived? With a nominee who is before us based on really tortured arguments about the Senate representing the will of the people, denying the Garland seat while opening, ushering in the Barrett seat. And as we cite the people as a justification, we acknowledge that this isn't a cause for celebration in most places. But it is, says Graham, in our world, clear implication that his world is a different plane of existence, a different world from the real world. Compared to the naked power grabs and flat-out lies and smears that have come to characterize the other two branches of government, the judiciary is positively genteel. I'll agree. Stipulated. Decisions are in fact derived through at least the presentation of arguments and the use of reason. And I have sought here today and yesterday to play Judge Barrett to give consideration to the arguments of and about Judge Barrett to at times acknowledge areas where there are interesting arguments from both sides, arguments that hold water. But the chairman says it all, doesn't he? When he says, this is a win for one world. This is no cause for celebration in most of the world. And I also have to think it's a further illustration and a perpetuation of the truth that in American politics, we are truly living on different planets. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She is reticent to proclaim her political preference, but she is wearing a Kangol hat, unlaced Adidas, and blasting Cool Modi from a boombox. So she just may be a funky fly Trump voter. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He wonders if Parscale, Manafort, and one day Stepien will admit to voting for Trump or will they belong to the growing category, the fall guy Trump voter. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She knew Sammy Davis Jr. was for Nixon. But would the Candyman like Trump? Would he say that he liked Trump or would he remain a glass eye Trump voter? The gist could all come down to Florida. Specifically, the crowd hanging around the frontons all day, smoking cigars and yelling, Chula! Yes, who could predict the predilections of the high-lie Trump voter? Ay, ay, ay. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.